Hey everyone, welcome back to Chad Fury. You're in the right place. Hope you're having an amazing week. Good to be with you again. Thanks for listening. Today we're covering population control. I'm looking at the recent population report that basically said we're going backwards. I'll take you through those details. Also, property prices are completely out of control. You've heard about the housing affordability crisis here in New South Wales. The election looms March this year, New South Wales state election, and we have Chris Minns, Dominic Perrette battling over stamp duty. We're also going to have a look at skilled migration, migration in general, how that feeds into what's going on here, as well as the power grab between states and local governments when it comes to planning. It's all related. I'm going to bring all of it together for you in a nice little package. So sit back, relax, put your earphones in, put your feet up, unless you're at work, in which case get back to work. and uh, let's get into all that. But just before we get into it, wherever you're listening to this podcast, help us out. Give us a five-star rating. Let people know that you love Chad Theory. Remember, I don't have ads on this show. I rely entirely upon the support from listeners. So if you can go to PayPal, there's a link in the description, make a one-off or a recurring donation. Thank you to all of you who are already doing that. You guys are absolute legends. You're literally keeping the lights on over here in the studio. And also consider becoming a paid subscriber because you're going to get exclusive content. Now, I told you we have a special on the state of COVID. That's coming out very, very soon, either today or tomorrow. Nico, Liv, and I are still planning it. We're going to get it perfect for you guys so we can add maximum value. So make sure you're a paid subscriber. Link in the description. Don't worry. It's seamless with Spotify. But if you're on a different podcast app, all you need to do is copy the private RSS URL and dump it into the app and you'll get that private feed. No worries. All right, let's get into it. Do you guys all remember when Peter Costello said, have one for mum, one for dad, and one for the country back in 2004 when they introduced the baby bonus? Remember, you used to get 3,000 or 5,000, somewhere in between, for every child born? Well, that was based on that incredibly low fertility rate of 1.77 at the time. Now, currently, our fertility rate is at 1.66 births per woman. Now, let's break this down and understand why that's a problem. Men can't give birth. (laughs) Let's just get that out of the way. So we rely on women to give birth to replace and add to the population. I mean, that's potentially a crude way of looking at it. But when we're looking at the economics of this, that's the reality is that women are the ones who are replacing the population. So if they're having 1.66 births per woman, that might sound like, okay, so they're adding to the population. But no, because uh, achieving a zero-sum game, if you like, would be to have two births per woman because, remember, men can't give birth. They have to replace the population for men and women. Is I don't know why I'm laughing saying that. I guess it's because there's uh, all this controversy over whether or not men can get pregnant. Anyway, it's not what we're talking about today. So if a birth rate in any country is below two, that means that over a long period of time, you know, they will converge on a, 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 a dwindling population, right? So we would need to get that birth rate over a factor of two to replace men and women and um, to continue to grow the population. And uh, that's also on the precursor that 
all women have children, right? And that there's an exact 50-50 ratio between men and women. So there's a bit of maths in there that I don't really want to get into, but rest assured that a birth rate of 1.66 is very, very low. Mind you, uh, just out of curiosity, for those of you who are interested, I'm, I'm pretty sure South Korea out of the sort of developed economies has um, one of the lowest birth rates. I think it's like 0.6 or 0.7, which is incredibly low. So then this population report came out um, just uh, at the beginning of the year. And uh, here's a quote. Australia's greatest long-term demographic challenge is the aging population with the share of people aged 65 and over doubling in the past 70 years. Now, let's just get our heads around that. The share of people age 65 and over doubling. So that's a representation of the population. It's becoming an increasingly older population. Now, the other side of this coin is that government spending is increasing year over year. Even Peter Costello himself said that a return to the baby bonus wouldn't be necessary because we spend far more now in benefits like paid parental leave and childcare than were ever spent on the baby bonus. So you see, year on year, the trend of government spending increasing on things like defense, uh, Medicare, NDIS, uh, the biggest uh, payment expenditure for governments is transfer payments um, to you know welfare payments and th those sorts of payments. So they're only increasing. Now, if we have the, the, the tax base or those of us who are of working age decreasing, like I said just now, the share of people aged over 65 will double. You, you quickly see the problem. The days are long gone of you know retiring at 55 and, and being able to sustain your standard of living until it's time to move on. Those days are well and truly gone for the majority of Australians. I mean, there's also the fact that uh, life expectancy is increasing as well. So we're living longer lives. So all of this together means that we're going to have a mismatch between those who are paying tax and supporting the tax system and, and government expenditure and those of us who are relying on those uh, goods and services that we receive from the government. I mean, that was the contract, right? Where you work for your working life, um, you pay taxes, and then the government looked after you on the back end. Um, obviously, except for those who are able to self-fund their retirement. So then enter skilled migration. This is an addiction that politicians have in Canberra. Now, listen to this. Peter MacDonald, a professor of demography at the University of Melbourne, pointed out the obvious that immigration has a massive impact on our aging population. So here's a quote from Peter MacDonald, he said, currently in the Australian population, about 17% are age 65 and over. Going out 40 years to 2061 without migration, that number would go to about 31%. Now, with migration of about 200,000 a year, which is a little bit lower than what we have, it's about 230, 250,000, it only goes to 23%. So you see this issue of that number doubling, like I outlined before, if you include skilled migration or any level of migration, just looking at the age issue, 
then you bring that number from 17% only up to 23%. It doesn't go all the way up to 31%. So Peter McDonald went on to say, migration makes a very, very substantial difference to population aging. And that's because the migrants are young and have their children and their grandchildren before they themselves get old. So they're adding to the population. They're more family-oriented than, I guess, the Western world are. We're, there, I mean, there are various reasons. I mean, this is a, a whole discussion on its own as to why younger people are having less and less children. No doubt it's because of cost-of-living crises and housing affordability crisis and you know certain other issues that create barriers to being able to live that Australian dream of, you know, having your home and having a couple of kids, two or three kids maybe, and, you know, not having to rely on both parents working an extraordinary amount of hours just to get by at a very basic standard of living. So it sounds reasonable then that skilled migration is the key. Just bring them in from outside the domestic population and add to it. Makes sense, right? You have all those warm and fuzzy things like multiculturalism and diversity, where richer culturally, everything is nice and dandy. Everyone's happy. But there's a problem with skilled migration, as you can imagine, and, and migration more generally. It creates an exogenous shock to the economy because migrants need housing immediately upon arrival. Think about it, right? If someone comes over to Australia for the first time to live, you know, it's not like a local birth where you're born into a family that already has housing and you you slowly enter the economy over a period of 18 years or uh, nowadays it's probably more like 30 years. But <laughs> but you, you see the difference. One's like, okay, we're here. We need somewhere to live. We have no family for the most part to rely on compared to a local birth or a local increase to the population, which is quite gradual and takes time. Now, there are other advantages of migration, mind you, because they've already been educated, presumably, in sort of the, the better case scenario. They've already developed their skills and whatnot overseas. The Australian government or the Australian taxpayer hasn't had to support them through that process of getting skilled up. So they come over here ready to contribute to the economy, right? They come over here without requiring all that education spending, all that health spending for the first, you know, 18, 21, 25 years of their life before they start making a net contribution compared to how those of us who were born here effectively burden the system, um, to put it in a crude way. But then the other side of the coin, again, is this housing problem. They are contributing to an increase in demand for housing. So then the housing affordability argument goes a little something like this. Real estate prices are too high. We have a housing affordability crisis. There's too much demand for housing and not enough supply. So how do we fix it? Well, we should just increase the supply of land and housing. That'll fix the problem, right? We just need to increase the supply. Simple. We have a demand explosion. That's ongoing because the federal government are obsessed with skilled migration because us uh, Aussies who, who, who live here and born here, we're not having enough kids. So the government is fixing the problem. They're adding in all these migrants coming from overseas, but we just need to increase the supply of land and housing. That'll fix the affordability crisis. Here's the problem with that. More than half of Sydney's councils 
have failed to meet targets to build new homes. This is the problem. There is a mismatch between the federal government, the state government, and local governments when it comes to their incentives and their responsibilities. Now, get this. 19 out of 33 Sydney councils did not meet their five-year target for homes to be built between 2016 and 2021. What target? What are you talking about, Chad? What, what is this target? Well, the state government has to deal with these migrants. The federal government does. You know, These migrants, you've probably heard me say this a million times if you follow this show. These migrants, they don't live in Canberra. You know, the, 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 the politicians down in Canberra are the, aren't the ones responsible for housing the migrants. They're just the ones that determine, uh, you know, how many of them come here and under what circumstances they come here to take from John Howard. So it's up to state governments and more specifically local councils to determine where they live because most of them end up in these city centres, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Perth, uh, Brisbane, you, you get the idea, right? So the state governments, to solve this problem, they give local councils quotas. They say, you need to build this many dwellings over this time period to meet your target. Now, there are no consequences for not meeting those targets until now. But let me give you the background before I, I take you through that, that new detail. So data from the planning department shows the city of Canary Bankstown was one of the worst performing councils. So it missed its five-year target of 13,250 homes by more than 4,400. So the target was just over 13,000 and they missed it by almost 5,000. Okay, so that's a massive miss. Okay, what about Fairfield Council? They had a five-year target of 3,000 homes, but they only built 1,600, almost 1,700. Okay, a target of 3,400 homes for the Northern Beaches. They got closer, but they were still only 2,318. Now, it wasn't just these sort of um, areas in Western Sydney that are the issue. Also, councils in wealthier areas, they also perform badly. So Mossman, they had a target of 300. They built 151. Hunters Hill, they had a five-year target of 150 homes, but they only built 92. Then we go to Blacktown, Camden, City of Ryde. And in contrast, they actually exceeded their target. So it's not all bad news around. But like I said, 19 out of 33 Sydney councils did not meet their five-year target. Now, here's a quote from Committee for Sydney Chief Executive Gabrielle Metcalf. He said, boosting housing supply was part of the solution to the city's housing affordability crisis. Remember, this is the argument that I was making before. He said, but we need to be sure we're putting the housing in the right places, Building more sprawl at the edge of Sydney is not the right answer, he said. It puts people far from jobs, locks them into long commutes, and forces those households to spend huge amounts of money on transport. Now, for those of you like myself who live in Western Sydney, you will know exactly what he is talking about. I mean, the, the cost to get in and out of the city using toll roads from Western Sydney, um, you know, let alone going to the airport, for example... It's like 20, 30 bucks. I mean, that is ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous. So he said, uh, more homes should be built around existing train stations and new metro shops. Letting people live near rail means people have access to everything Sydney has to offer. It's the path to true long-term affordability. So I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment, but let me give you a little bit more information because I said to you before 
there's a problem here between the responsibilities of the state and the local governments with these targets, right? There are no consequences if the local councils do not meet these state government targets. So this is what they're doing. There are planned changes to the state environmental planning policies where projects that are deemed to be significant developments or have a capital investment over $100 million and a fifth of their gross floor area is social or affordable housing, that planning decision will go to the Minister for Planning or the Independent Planning Commission. They will have the power to approve or reject those proposals. So it bypasses local and regional planning panels. So instead of giving them targets, they're saying, look, you guys haven't met your targets. Like I said, 19 out of 33 Sydney councils have not met your targets. When it comes to these big projects that are going to make a big impact on housing and reaching these targets, we're taking that planning decision out of your hands. So what does that say to developers? Well, that says, wow, now these arguments that you're having with local councils about amenities and certain issues, for example, out here in the Hills District where I live, it uh, used to be called the Garden Shire. I don't even know if they call it the Garden Shire anymore because there's so many bloody apartments everywhere. But there was a massive problem out here because we're out on the sticks, but they're building 20-story high-rises here. <laughs> it's like, well, are we a Garden Shire or is this Chatswood? Is this Sydney City? You know, is this Parramatta CBD? So you see there's this issue between developers and local communities, but the state government is jumping in and saying, we're going to take that debate away from there. We're going to take this issue away from local councils and we're going to take it to the state level and we're going to give this power, like I said, to the Minister for Planning or the Independent Planning Commission. This is one way, I guess, that they will be able to solve this housing target issue. But here's a little detail that some of you might find amusing. The city of Sydney local government area will be excluded from the scheme. Any development applications in that area would continue to be assessed by the council and determined by the central Sydney planning committee. So they get special rules because that's the city centre, presumably. Now, there's definitely an issue here, right, with the way in which the burden of increasing housing supply is spread across major cities. So with areas like Western Sydney, they're expected to bear the brunt of higher density and more population growth because they're newer developments. So those of you out there who might be a little bit cynical might argue that the residents of wealthier suburbs benefit financially from the growth in density and population in newer, poorer areas in Western Sydney. But listen, you'd have to be a real cynic to make that argument, right? <laughs> anyway, I want to move into stamp duty policy. Random, I know, but it's, it's current, it's in the news, it's in the debate coming into the state election here in New South Wales, which will happen in March. And I'm going to use this to come in a sort of a roundabout way to come back to you guys to explain exactly what's going on here and, and how to fix it, because there's a big budget problem here in New South Wales. And I want to explain this to you in a little bit of detail before I get into the solution to all of this. So Labor in opposition, Chris Minns, he's promised to abolish stamp duty on property purchases up to $800,000 and to offer a reduced rate for homes up to a million dollars. 
So this is in comparison to Perite's policy to introduce a land tax option for those people who don't want to or cannot afford to fork out that uh, upfront stamp duty payment, which is usually around, I think it's almost 5% of the value of um, the purchase or, or, or thereabouts. So there's a difference in these two policies. The labor policy is to just completely abolish stamp duty for those lower values. I mean, the median house price, I think, in Sydney is, is around a million dollars, or maybe maybe that's around Australia, is around a million dollars. So this will presumably um, assist those first home buyers who are trying to get into the market under that median house price. So that makes sense, right? On face value to eliminate stamp duty for um, those values. Although you could argue that it's pork barreling, couldn't you? Because it's a specific target on a specific demographic uh, area of the population. Hmm. I don't know. That's part of a different conversation. But but looking at the other option, which is from the Perite government for this land tax, you can opt in to the land tax. So what does that mean? Well, you can choose to pay stamp duty or you can choose to not pay stamp duty, but pay a land tax for the life of that property. So it's a nominal fee of a few hundred bucks plus a small percentage that uh, I guess is is pegged to the value of that property. Now, the problem here is in the fine print from what I remember when this was announced, this policy from the Perite government, is that once a buyer at any time in the chain of buyers decides to switch over to a land tax, subsequent owners of that property cannot switch back to the stamp duty option. So if a property keeps getting transferred between owners and they all pay stamp duty, as soon as one person decides to opt in for the land tax, everyone after that, if the house is then sold again at some point, they cannot opt back into stamp duty. The land tax stays with that property for all subsequent owners. And Chris Minns was on TV just before. I was just watching it. He was making a point about Perite's land tax that I made last year when it was announced. And that's that real estate prices increase faster than wages. So say, for example, real estate prices increase at 8% per year for the next 50 years. You can pick any number you want. It's going to be higher than wages, right? Whereas wages, as we know, have struggled over the last couple of decades to continue to rise, particularly in real terms. But if you have a, a wage increase, a generous one of, say, 3%, your wages will not keep up with the increase of 8% that I gave in the example of the real estate price increase. So over time, slowly, the portion of your wages that, are, that you're contributing to the land tax is increasing. The, 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 the tax is creeping in on your income as time goes on. Let's put all that to the side. I just wanted to give that to you as an example of what's going on with stamp duty policy. And I've asked this question before, and I want to ask it to you all right now. Why do we even have stamp duty? I mean, shouldn't it really be a few hundred bucks? The idea of the government charging you a fee to process your property transaction on their records, that's effectively what it is, right? It's a stamp duty. It's it's an administration fee for facilitating your transaction in government records, effectively. And maybe it was a more significant task back in the day when they actually had to shuffle papers, but everything's electronic now. I mean, you could even argue that this process is almost entirely automated. I mean, you have real estate agents inputting data, you have solicitors that actually 
do the transaction and exchange and settle the transaction, it begs the question, what is the, what is the government actually doing here in this transaction to warrant almost 5% of the purchase price? Now, to, to understand why, you have to look at the state government's budget. So we're looking at the New South Wales government budget here. So this is the 2022 to 23 budget year. This is the government's document. I'm going to leave a link to this document in the description of this podcast. So for those of you who want to pour over it with a fine tooth comb like I have, you can do so in your own time. But let me take you through the important details here. So I'm looking at a nice little colorful chart of government sector revenue. So I'm looking at a nice little colorful chart here that covers general government sector revenue. And it's estimated to be a total of $103.6 billion for the 2022 to 23 financial year. So let's look at the actual composition of this. Well, number one, you have taxation. That's it. It just says taxation. That equals 38.3%. Okay. So that's the biggest chunk. The second biggest chunk is Commonwealth general purpose, and it says includes GST. So this is basically the federal government who raises GST. Remember, GST doesn't go to state governments. It's a federal government tax, but then they redistribute most of it back to the state government. So that's what that 24.6% is. Then you have smaller portions, Commonwealth national agreements, that's 12%, Commonwealth partnerships, other grants, sales of goods and services. So that'll be like... Um, Anytime you use a government service, anytime you purchase something that you know, the government produces, like transport and all that kind of stuff, that represents almost 10%. You have royalties, 4%, fines, fees, interest, other revenues, 3.3%, dividend, income tax, equivalents and other distributions, that's only 3%. So the point here is that the majority of government tax revenue for New South Wales comes from number one, taxation, 38%, and Commonwealth redistribution of GST, that's about 25%. But I wasn't happy because I'm looking at this and it just says taxation. I want to know what's in the taxation. So you have to go all the way down. Let's do some scrolly scrolly all the way down to the fine print where they actually break that down. That's the bit that we're interested in. Here we go. General government sector summary of taxation revenue. Stamp duties for the 2023 budget year 13 billion. Taxes on land, 5.6 billion. Okay. Okay. That sounds like a lot. Now, what's the total here again? It was $39 billion. Now, let's do a little bit of calculation here. If we strip out the tax grants from the federal government, you know, all the GST redistribution, and we purely look just at this tax revenue, that the New South Wales government raises itself. Stamp duty and land taxes combined make up 47% of New South Wales government total taxation revenue. Almost 50% of the New South Wales government's total taxation revenue comes from stamp duties and land tax. Wow. Now, some of you might be asking the question, although you should be, what about gambling and betting taxes? Because remember, we have this massive pokies problem in New South Wales. New South Wales is one of the pokies capitals of the world. We love gambling here in New South Wales, even though the majority of gambling profits come from problem gamblers. So what's that number? Well, 
It's only $3 billion. That's right. Gambling and betting taxes, 2023 budget year, $3.2 billion. It is minuscule. Now, this isn't gambling revenue. This is gambling and betting taxation. So this is the portion that the government takes from uh, RSL clubs, pubs, clubs, uh, casinos, etc. I mean, they actually literally have a line item here just for casino, and that's $231 million. They have club gaming devices, hotel gaming devices, uh, lotteries and lotto. So they, they do break it down with, with racing as well. But the total is $3.2 billion. That's equal to 8%. Now, let's just get this straight. Stamp duty and land taxes combined make up 47% of New South Wales government's total taxation revenue, whereas gambling and betting taxes equal just 8%. Do you see the problem here? Do you see what's going on? Do you see why I wanted to take you through this? Because the real issue is that Australia and New South Wales, more specifically, we are completely hooked on housing. On what planet, certainly not this one, do you reckon the New South Wales government and the Australian government are going to fix this housing affordability problem when they literally, here in New South Wales, get half of their taxation revenue from housing prices? Remember, it's not about the amount of transactions. It's just about the value of the transactions. They want high prices. Keep those prices up and you will have more and more revenue to support your ever bloating governments. Now, what's the solution? I've just been sitting here, you know, spouting problems and, and giving you guys the background in all of this and probably making a lot of you feel quite depressed. How do we fix this? It's all about incentives. Let's understand the incentives here. Number one, we need to fix the banking system, the creation of money. Now, I'm not going to go into it now. I've covered this in great detail over the course of you know the, the time that I've been doing my show, I will do potentially a show in the future in, in more detail about this, maybe a special for all the members. But the way that money creation works in Australia and broadly across the Western world is money is created when commercial banks like the Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, ANZ, National Australia Bank, we choose any bank, right? When they make a loan, that's new money. The bank creates that money out of thin air, commercial banks. Not the Reserve Bank, not the Central Bank, not the government, commercial banks, okay? Now, they do that and then they go and settle their books afterwards on wholesale markets. So borrowing from the Reserve Bank of Australia or other international um, wholesale markets or even um, from, from private citizens via, via bonds and, and whatnot. So long story short, when a commercial bank makes a loan for a house, so a mortgage, that's when new money is created. So not only do governments have an addiction to high property prices and the construction of dwellings, our banking system does as well. Again, talk about incentives. So how do you fix this? Well, our banking system needs to be told if they can't figure it out for themselves and if the incentive structures aren't in place, they need to start lending more to business and productive assets rather than financial assets like real estate, these speculative assets that rely on subsequent purchases to pay more for that property for the house of cards to continue growing. We should be incentivizing banks to create new money against productive assets. That's how you're going to get productivity to increase. That's how you're going to get real wages to increase. That's number one. Number two, three levels of government, 
federal, state, local. They need to realign their incentives with their responsibilities. Like I said at the outset of this podcast, the federal government brings in this population so that they can boost economic growth. Remember, the federal government, they're the ones who are responsible for economic growth. We don't look at state economic growth. We don't look at local council economic growth or unemployment. We focus on those federal national aggregate figures. So their incentive is to boost those figures. How can they do that? One of the ways is to bring in migrants. But like I said, the problem is they're not responsible for town planning. They're not responsible for housing them. That falls on the New South Wales government and to the local councils. Now, the New South Wales government and local councils here in Sydney, they can't even coordinate themselves to do that. So the New South Wales government is, you know, pushing forward with this power grab to give the minister for planning to make that decision. So if we then have more say from local councils and state governments in how much migration intake we have, and if we have the federal government more interested in what's going on at the local level, then that's one way of realigning the incentives. Another thing that we can do is get rid of stamp duty and land taxes. I mean, why do we even have them? It doesn't even make sense logically as a tax. Replace this with a few hundred dollar administration fee for processing the bloody paperwork and get rid of that incentive. I mean, the argument um, therefore would become, well, but then tax revenues won't be able to cover government expenditures. Well, then decrease the size of the government. It, it doesn't work like that. You, the, the government doesn't decide what it wants to spend money on and then it creates taxes to get there. It should be the other way around. We should be figuring out the role of government based on the economics of taxation. It, it, it should be the other way around. And it, feel free if you, if you disagree with me, but um, that's the way I see it. And again, there's a mismatch between the different levels of government, which is contributing to this, hence why you have this redistribution of GST and whatnot. Okay, that's my second point. Three levels of government need to realign. Number three, have specific infrastructure requirements for housing density and new housing approvals. You can't just have approvals in the middle of nowhere for a whole new town and a whole new suburb to be created so that we can increase the supply of housing without vital infrastructure. I mean, you've heard stories about new housing communities where there's a massive bottleneck to get out onto the main road every morning because they haven't planned it properly. There are new housing developments and new suburbs being created that don't have adequate access to schools. How is this not figured out in the planning process? We need to force governments to think more carefully about planning. My goodness. And then point number four, we need to have more specific requirements for skilled migration and reduce our migration intake. If we're going to fix the infrastructure and the planning problems, if we're going to ensure that this country is more livable, then my goodness, we have to reduce the skilled migration intake. We have to reduce our migration intake more broadly. We need to make this country more livable again. It is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the incentives all the way up the chain in the government and in the banking sector are so heavily skewed that we've forgotten what we're actually doing here, people. The point is to live sustainably. The point is to live in a world where our standard of living is livable. I mean, goodness me, do you really need me to tell you this? They're my four points. That's my solution to fix this. 
Let me know what you guys think. You can uh, get in contact with me on Twitter or Instagram. My handle is at Chad Theory Show. Uh, make sure you follow me as well. Stay up to date with everything that I'm doing. Uh, also, don't forget to give us a five-star rating right here on the podcast app that you're listening to. It helps us with the algorithm and the apps will then promote this show a little bit more. Uh, let people know you love Chad Theory. Tell family and friends. Share this. Get this out, folks. It's one of the best things that you can do. Uh, you can also make a donation via PayPal if you feel so inclined. If you feel like I've added value to your life, which is my goal every day coming on here, making sure I'm keeping you guys up to date and adding value, go on to PayPal. There's a link below uh, in the description of this show and uh, make a donation. You can make a one-off or a recurring donation. It's a great way to help me and to support me because I have no ads. I rely entirely on the support of listeners and another thing that you can do just before I hop off is become a paid subscriber and you will get access to exclusive content. I have a special coming out to you guys very, very soon on the state of COVID. That'll either come out today or tomorrow. I'm currently still planning it with Liv and Nico. We're going to get that together for you. That is paid subscriber content only. And there's more coming every week. I'm going to do an international affairs show. And there's always going to be specials coming up, folks. Make sure you become a paid sub paid subscriber. It's only $8.99 per month. It's not a lot of money considering how much value you get. And remember, I completely rely on my listeners for support. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed my roundabout way of explaining the issue here with population control, the issue between states and local governments and how we can fix that, stamp duty policy, etc., etc. I'll uh, speak to you guys soon, I guess. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you next time. See ya.